0: Father and our God, we want to thank you for the fact that you are the one who strengthens the weak and lifts up the weary and rescues the lost. Because, Father, not many of us are strong and not many of us were wise, and all of us were at one time lost. And we are so grateful. That you are a God who redeems and rescues lost people, brings them into your marvelous kingdom of light, and frees us to love and serve you out of hearts of gratitude. So Lord, it is with that attitude that we come to you in prayer and ask now that you would open up our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to respond and receive the message you have for us. We have come expectant for you to feed us, to nourish our walk with God. And it's in that spirit we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank our Christian service brigadiers this morning for being the the service team you notice that, that uh, remember, brings back memories of uh, when I was a little Christian service brigadier. Yes, sir. Loved that uniform. It's a great, great time. So we uh, thank the uh, ministry. It's a great ministry here. And we thank all the leaders and for all they pour into the kids' lives. And um, appreciate their work today. Well, I guess, I guess everything's sort of... Happy in Leafland today. I, I was just thinking, you know, that the Bruins lost last night, and um, the Leafs got a point, and Matt Sundin won the game. I, I suspect that's probably as good as it gets for Leaf people these days. So, I want to congratulate you on a on a good Saturday night, and assume that you're in a really good mood this morning, ready to listen to God's word in light of all that's gone on around us. Well, we want to continue on with this. Discussion on the battle lines, on spiritual warfare, and the whole opposition toward live big. Uh, we we uh, shared with you last week a reminder that we've developed this series out of John chapter ten, verse ten, where Jesus said, "I have come to bring you life, or to give you life, and to give it to you abundantly." and And uh, we've we've uh, talked about a lot of things about that live big, live abundant kind of life. And and then we took a a, a trip last week into. Um, the statement he made just before he made that statement, which reminds us that there is a thief, and a thief comes to, to steal and to kill and to destroy, and, and there is this warfare that goes on uh, in every possible way, trying to interfere with the abundant life that Jesus wants you to have, and it comes from the thief. And, and uh, by the way, we, we know that this thief is, is a reference to Satan, and, and, and it's not some sort of fabricated persona to describe or uh, that we might lay blame on evil, but Satan is a real being, a real person. In fact, um, he's identified throughout the storyline of the Old Testament, beginning in the Garden of Eden, and and moving right through the Old Testament, we find in the last prophet, Malachi in Old Testament, there's a reference there to a final reckoning uh, with evil. And then, of course, throughout the New Testament, every New Testament writer, all 19 of them, reference Satan. 19 of the 27 New Testament books. And if that isn't enough, Jesus himself references or talks about Satan 25 times. So for us to somehow uh, not be willing to uh, receive the uh, reality of Satan would be for us to say that we no longer believe in the veracity of what Jesus Christ himself says. And so we, we um, had an introduction uh, last week and paraded the reality and some of the obvious tactics before you of uh, of stealing your trust in the gospel and in the effects of the gospel in God and His goodness, we talked about how He kills the thuse for food to sacrifice you. We talked about Him destroying your spiritual progress, and um, and His modus operandi we discovered is of course lies. Jesus Himself identified Satan as the father of lies, His offspring are lies, and and He builds a case uh, in your life, filling your head with the the same. Uh, destructive messages over and over again that that you are uh, deprived and a loser and a failure and and he drops all of these stun bombs into your heart all of the time paralyzing your usefulness and your journey to holiness and lies about you, lies about God, lies about others audible only to you and they explode in your heart with just enough regularity to, to keep you spiritually immobile. Well today... I, I want to share with you what I, what I think is his specialized and best tactic on believers. And uh, I want to talk to you uh, uh, this morning about something from God's word that I believe is, is perhaps one of the most critical messages you'll ever hear and that you need to have. Not because I'm delivering it, but because it is from God's word and it is crucial to the church. And the reason I know it's crucial is because the Apostle Paul talks so much about it, and I think for 2,000 years we have been struggling with this, and it is Satan's best tactic on how he immobilizes the church. And, and it is this, it is how he steals the gospel that has set you free from your life. And, and there could be no greater um, uh, destructive work in your life than for that to be done by making you captive all over again. If he can't keep you bad, he can keep you enslaved. And so what I want to talk to you this morning about in terms of this battle lines... ...is the battle for your obedience to God, which is a good thing... ...in your own strength, which is a really bad thing. And I can't exaggerate that enough. I can't express enough how important this is. The battle for your obedience to God, but in your own strength... ...is the deadly tactic of the evil one. This is how he undermines the gospel in your life. Piper identifies this strategy by saying this, Satan and his demons specialize in taking the commandments of the law and alluring people in the church to make those commandments a basis of self-righteousness. We could not begin to say that, that in this particular issue There is more powerless, more frustrated, more immature, more grouchy, more angry, more joyless, more sinful believers, more stunted, more ineffective, more warring churches, more disillusioned, lost, next generation, based on this strategy, I believe, than any other of Satan's resources. And that's why there's so much written about it in the scriptures. It is, from a warfare perspective, a brilliant tactic. And uh, quite simply, because we don't really even contemplate the danger for the most part. We don't really even give much thought to this happening in our lives or around us. Because in fact, we are, for the most part, living trying to live, at least, and keeping the law or the rules of the scriptures. We are convinced that we are somehow in great shape because we are keeping rules that have been handed to us. And in so doing, we, we slip across a very fine line, a dangerous line. We slip from the gospel over the line to religion. And it is a fine line, and it is one that's hard for us at times to discern, whereby we're reduced in our lives to keeping rules, rules of ritual, and resentfully convinced that somehow God wants and demands this, and we become religious people who are burdened people, and frustrated people, and immature people, when in fact Christ died not for that... Christ died that we might live the gospel. The gospel is that that we have been redeemed from the slave market of sin. We have been rescued and enabled to repent and turn from sin. That we might have a a relationship with Jesus Christ. And out of that relationship of redemption and salvation, our hearts might be so filled with gratitude That we might serve his righteous commands out of a grateful heart. In his strength, by faith, to his glory. That's the gospel. And I want to say it again. I want to make sure that, that you understand what the good news really is. Because somebody might die this week. And I don't want to be responsible for the fact that you were here. And you didn't hear how to be saved. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that Christ died on the cross of Calvary to save us from our sins, to pay the penalty of our sins. And by responding to that act of Christ and receiving forgiveness for our sins from from Christ, we might be able to repent, to turn from our sins and ourselves and receive Jesus Christ as our Savior to then be redeemed and purchased out of the slave market of sin and put into his marvelous kingdom of light, and thereby to have a relationship with God the Father restored because of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that we might live a new life in the Spirit who he gives us by faith to his glory. And that is available to you this morning by simply saying, I am a sinner and I believe you died for me and I want to have you in my heart Please come into my life and change me. Forgive me. And I want to live for you. That's the gospel. And it frees us from enslavement to sin. From being enslaved to ourselves. From trying to live according to rules. It saves us to serve Jesus from free hearts of gratitude. That's the gospel message. We are good news people. And Satan wants to take that away from you. In fact, it is so brilliant because, in fact, he functions at the level of our very faith, of our very religion. One writer has said, or I found it somewhere, I'm not really sure who, or I heard it somewhere, but religion is the banquet table of the demonic. And I'm going to show you this morning from the Scriptures how that is a true statement. It is right here that the thief... Eats us alive. We talked about that word kill being thuse in Greek, being the word to kill for food or to sacrifice us. It is in this very reality, the gospel versus religion, that Satan seeks to eat us alive. Let's make sure we understand the problem because I don't want to go any further and have you staring at me saying, Well, I'm not really sure what you're talking about. What's the deal here? Here's the problem. Churches are populated by, quotation, good, some commandment-abiding people. Now, I know that's sort of a long term of, uh, of, uh, of adjectives to try and describe a person, but, but the churches of evangelicalism are filled with, quotations, good, some commandment-abiding people. A- and um, that's the problem, because, in fact, um, I want to describe to you that before Christ, of course, or outside of Christ, uh, we are capable of a, of a varied array of, uh, of moral behaviors and disciplines based on our upbringing or our personality or incentives. And uh, let me talk to you about that for a few moments. Outside of Christ is what I'm talking about. Before you came to know Christ or the people that don't know Christ, there, there, were, there are the capabilities that all of us have to live a certain moral uh, disciplined behavior it has it varies from person to person based on your upbringing if you were brought up in a really socially refined setting where your parents taught you how to how to live well and how to treat people and all of that well i'm sure you're making it very well on your own strength and and some of the the upbringing that you've had on how to interact with people and get along and get ahead in life Or it might have something to do with your personality, whether you're a compliant person or a strong-willed person. Compliant people, they just seem to breeze through life just on the basis of the fact that they're very compliant. Or there's incentives. We all grew up with incentives. A spanking when you were bad, chocolate when you were good. And so on the basis of... ...upbringing, personality, incentives... ...we have a varied array around us... ...of people who don't know Christ... ...but are living uh, uh, of differing uh, values... and, and, ...and differing good moral behavior... ...on their own strength. Only what, by the way... ...can be accomplished by their unique humanity mix. It has everything to do with whether or not... ...you had a good gene pool and a good environment and then by that unique human makeup you can live a varied and disciplined life certain good behaviors but the problem with the humanist agenda is that there are hopeless limitations to human progress you're at the mercy for the most part of your gene pool mix and the environment so if it wasn't very good socially at home, or if it, you didn't come, you aren't a, you're a strong-willed person, or, or the incentives didn't work for you, or whatever, uh, there are limitations to how you can progress in that human strength alone. And so there's, there's a whole world of people who are victims of humanism, hopelessness, and, and on the basis of that, they recognize that, and so fundamentally, across our globe, people turn to an external Forced to try and do some work on their behavior, and so they turn to religion. Whether it be Hinduism, or Buddhism, or Islam, or, 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 or Judaism, or New Age, or Christianity, whatever. And so that's why, in fact, uh, and, and by the way, if you, if you simply turn to some sort of external uh, religious framework to try and impose some sort of discipline... ...on your gene pool mix and your environment... ...to try and make you somehow a better person... ...I can tell you right now that Satan is totally cool with that. He's fine with that. Religion is... ...an even deadlier hopelessness. Because its followers rely on... ...a false hope. No change of nature... So, so religion becomes the banquet table of the demonic. You've moved from the idol of yourself to the idol of religion. But after Christ, to those of us who know Jesus Christ, who come to a relationship with Christ, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, who creates in us a new potential. And We become a new creation, and changes take place, and Old limitations are gone. It's not just about our gene pool mix or our environment or incentives any longer. There is a work that is being done inside of us by the Holy Spirit of God, changing us, transforming us in a, a most amazing and supernatural way. In fact, listen to the how Paul write when Paul writes to the Romans and how he describes this this uh, new look of the Christian. In Romans chapter 6, verse 6, he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way... You have now, because you have come to know Christ as Savior, you have received a new nature. You're now empowered to say no to sins we were captive to. You're actually having your desires changed by God. Religion can't do that. Can't change your desires. You're actually empowered to say yes to all the commands of Christ. Formally impossible for you to submit to or act upon. Religion can't change you from rebellion. No matter how many rules you try to force upon yourself. So you've received after Christ a total upgrade in your behavior from the BC before Christ scenario. As Christ is revealed, is being revealed in you and formed in you by his spirit. But here's the problem. In church because we've just given a sweeping description of those outside of Christ and those who have Christ but what about those who have Christ but are still living like before Christ and I must say to you that that takes in a huge number of people in evangelicalism and there may be some here this morning and I think there will be I know my own life, my own heart If you are functioning in the B.C. way while claiming to be in the A.C. time of your life, Satan won't interfere with that at all. In other words, if you are living with the same strategies as you lived with before you came to know Christ, even though you're claiming to know Christ, Satan will not interfere with that in your life. Because you are licking his stamps. ...you have turned from the gospel to religion. And Paul writes very, very uh, vigorously about this very issue in a lot of his writings. Certainly most, most of the book of Romans, or a lot of the book of Romans... ...certainly the book of Galatians, uh, a fair bit of Colossians... and whoever wrote Hebrews, a lot in Hebrews. And maybe Paul wrote that. I don't know. But there was a lot of writing going on about this very issue of people who have been rescued out of the slave market of sinfulness and relying on their own strength to to gain some sort of moral standing with God who've been rescued out of that and now are turning back to it in their lifestyles. It's the sin of the church. It's our biggest sin. It's our most prevalent sin, it's a most obvious sin, and it's the sin that most damages us. If your life choices are still based on these before Christ strategies, then you are, are still leaning on your relational success strategies that you learned from the social networks you grew up in, and even maybe the church you grew up in, and all of its social formulas and rituals and rules. Or you, and you are, you are relying on your natural compliance to say yes to certain things. Or you're relying on your biology or incentives, fines and rewards. And Satan is saying, have at it. It's okay with him. Now, now you're probably asking the question, how do, how do I know if, if I'm it? How do I know if I'm one of these people claiming to have a relationship with Christ but living with BC strategies in my life? Surely not me. I go to church. I sing. Well, maybe not much, but sometimes. I teach. I don't swear. Almost never. By the way, this is not a self-confession this morning. This is possibilities. (laughs) I don't smoke or drink. I've never acquired a taste for it, of I, I don't practice sexual immorality, but, but then again I have a spouse. So, so let me ask the question of, of all those things I've just rattled off, which by the way, many of us would claim to be our, our claim to spiritual fame. This is, my, this is my spiritual biography, this is my resume. Aren't you excited about it, God? And I guess the question is, well, did you need God for any of those things? I mean, think about it. To go to church, to sing, to teach, to abstain from drinking or smoking, to, to abstain from sexual immorality. Did, did any of those things require God? I, know, I don't know about you, but I know a whole lot of people who don't know Jesus Christ, who that could be their resume. In fact, a better resume than that. But they don't know Christ. So if your life consists, basically, of choosing only the stuff that comes really easily to you, that you can just sort of knock off, which is mostly external, religious, ritual, good living stuff, then maybe, just maybe, you're it. And by the way, the only obedience you practice then is is what you can easily do in your own strength. You're being good in spite of Jesus and not because of him. Now, I didn't say to spite him. I just said in spite of him. That's how the world lives. The world is, is steeped in good behavior around us in spite of the fact that Jesus is living. Not because of him. Here, Piper, again, Satan does not care if you try to keep the Ten Commandments, provided that you take the credit for keeping them. In fact, he will assist your moral resolve if you will do it that way. Satan does not mind if you come to church or teach Sunday school or preach or lobby for a human life bill or seek prayer in the schools. He's all in favor of whatever your moral agenda is, provided you rely on yourself instead of the Spirit of Christ. Now, you might be shocked to hear that. I didn't say it. Piper did. But I agree with him. He's right. He's absolutely right. This is the danger of evangelicalism. This is the danger that that is among us. Is that we might grade ourselves... ...on the wrong criterion. And that we might find ourselves, in fact... ...in Satan's camp... ...being religious... ...instead of good news people... ...of the gospel. Now you might be a... ...a BCAC person... ...that might be the name of a new singing group... ...for all I know, the BCACs, I don't know... ...but you might be a BC... ...I hope not... ...you might be a BCAC person... ...if your passion for Christ... ...and His vision is fairly cool. Uh, Francis Fenland said uh, to just read the Bible, attend church, and avoid big sins. Is this, passion, is this passionate, wholehearted love for God? Or, or maybe uh, you, you might be that person if your character is better described by the acts of the sinful nature, which are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, Jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions and factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you. Paul writes to the Galatians, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, because this kind of stuff comes from religion. It comes from trying to keep the rules and the rituals. It doesn't come from gospel. Results of the gospel, he says, are the fruit of the spirit: There's love and joy and peace. And, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. You can't make rules. Paul says you can't make rules to make this stuff happen. This comes from a a dramatic change that that is within you. That you don't have the strength in your own to manifest. Maybe you're a a BCAC person if you're you're totally selective in what you obey. Just obey the stuff as you read through the scriptures. Well, you know, that sermon was a little tough. I'm not going to wade into that one. But, but that sermon, oh, I can knock that one off. That's no problem. I'll do that. Or maybe you don't experience the power of God to defeat temptation outside of your control zone. I'm not tempted not to come to church. Well, you know, I kind of have to come to church. But, but even if I didn't have to come to church... Even when I don't have to come to church. I'm not, I'm not tempted not to come to church. That's what's in my control zone. That's in my wheelhouse. I can do that on my own strength. I just I get into my car and turn the key and drive here. It's not, it's not a big deal. I'm not expecting you know, God to be all amped up about the fact that I come to church. But what about the things that are outside of my personal control zone that go against my biology and my... Uh, my, my, uh, my environment and, and the incentives aren't there. Or maybe you're judgmental toward those who don't seem to keep the same commands you do. Whole denominations are formed because of this. Do you not know that that's fundamentally why the evangelical world is so fragmented? It's all based on our religious rituals and stuff. You know what? You, you don't keep the same commands I do. You can't possibly be as spiritual as I am. You don't do things the same way I do them. Or your spiritual life is schizophrenic. Feel like that? Man, just one, sometimes it's like really spiritual, and other times it's like fleshly. Satan has you stranded. It's his most subtle, specialized tactic. Obedience in your own strength for your own glory. You wouldn't assess it that way, but Satan does, and Jesus certainly. Now, now you're, you're surely asking, this is about spiritual warfare and Satan and all that. What does Satan have to do with this? I'm glad you asked. Open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. That was a long introduction, wasn't it? But don't panic. Don't panic. Don't panic. It's one of those big, long introductions, and then just to get to the point, and then we go. That's the way it goes. So, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. I want to draw your attention to verse 8, First. Formally, B.C., before you knew Christ, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, A.C., or rather are known by God, far more significant, he won't say depart from me, I never knew you, How is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. Now, I want to point out to you three words that leapt out at me as I'm looking at this text. The the first was in verse 8, the word those. And then in verse 9, the word those again. And then at the end of verse 9, the word them now, now, what are the those, those, and them that he's referring to? Because he's blaming those, those, and them on, on why the Galatians are not moving forward with Christ. Who or what are these? And by the way, he, he further elaborates or helps us to see a little bit, uh, uh, and appear a little bit into his insight here by saying that those, by nature, are not God's. So, what is he talking about here? Well, in verse 3, he he tells again about the BC reality when he says, See also, when we were children, or outside of Christ, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those... Purchase you out of the slave market. Redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. We've been talking to you about this. Of getting all the features of God. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. He has freed you. And, And so, Paul says here, when you were children before Christ... You were enslaved under... And the, and the word he uses here is stokia, the Greek word. We're going to talk about that. So I'm going to say, he, he says, he refers to something. You were enslaved under... We'll just, for the sake of, uh, of description right now, call it something, which we're going to reveal in a few minutes. You were, you were under something, enslaved under the something of this world. But when time had fully come, and, and, and God rescued you through Jesus Christ, everything changed in your life now... ...you are a child of God... ...you're a son liberated... ...and freed from the slave market of sin... ...to be an heir... ...to the full features of God... ...that you receive by the fact... ...that the Spirit of God moves into your life... ...so that now you can counteract... ...the former somethings... ...that you used to rely on... ...for your behavior. Okay. What are these somethings? The word stokeia. By the way... ...it's the same word... Paul uses again in verse 9 the miserables, weak and miserable principles and that as the basic principles, so he's tied it into calling them those, those, and them, those miserable principles. Those and what are they by definition? They are either elementary principles or elemental substances. Of course, the early world talked about the things of fire and earth and water. Um, and air as being the elemental substances or elementary spirits or heavenly bodies or signs of the zodiac or literally he's saying you were enslaved to those realities that are not gods which are basic instinct, basic natural observations like the animal kingdom itself except there are also these elementary spirits or there is these supernatural effects in your life as well. And here's the scoop. You need to check, we need to check the references on what these not-gods are all about, this not-god stuff. It has a track record throughout the scriptures. I'm going to pick out a few, couple for you here, so you can get an orientation of what he's talking about. And then we'll, we'll bring this around to the practical realities of what it means to your life. But but here's a reference from Second Chronicles thirteen nine for instance. But didn't you drive out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron, and the Levites, and make priests of your own as the peoples of other lands do? Whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams may become a priest of what are not gods. There's that phrase. In other words, the people of God in this particular scenario were fashioning idols by their own strength... ...desiring to resist the kingdom of God... ...in favor of their idols... ...that they made with their own hands. The moral system... ...the the spiritual... ...or the the religious system... ...that they were developing... ...was being based upon human strength... ...no need of God... ...not God's... ...it was a not God's living style of life. Well... ...we track a little bit further... ...in the Old Testament to Jeremiah... ...Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 11... And Jeremiah the prophet, God speaking through him, says, "...has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all, but my people have exchanged their glory, capital G, for worthless idols." In other words, they have changed gods that are the not-gods at all that Paul, I believe, is referring to in Galatians also... They have exchanged their glory, capital G, the God of the universe, for works of their own hands. Little g glory. It shouldn't surprise us at all that both of these systems that are described in the Old Testament were in a religious context. That's why I say, religion is the banquet table of the demonic. Where does Satan kill us for food? Religion is his table. These are idols of basic instinct, works of their own making and strength. So Piper says, he's Satan, all in favor of whatever your moral agenda is, provided you rely on yourself instead of the Spirit of Christ, and take credit for it instead of humbly giving all glory to God. So what's behind these not-gods that we've just talked about that have become gods of human manufacturing? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul, in referencing idols or things made by human hands, says this, Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to Demons. ...not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. The Apostle Paul is linking... ...in his writings... ...the Old Testament description of not-gods... ...and the, the realities behind these not-gods... ...to demonic activity. So when he is referencing... ...those, those, and them... ...the not-gods that are by nature not-gods... ...the elementary principles, the stoichia, ...the elementary spirits... He is referencing demons. And that brings us all the way around to say this. That anybody who is relying on religion in their own strength... ...is in fact worshipping the demonic. I told you this was bad for evangelicalism. I told you this was serious. This isn't just an intramural faux pas... This is the the dividing line in a church between whether or not we are going to be good news gospel people, spirit filled, walking with the spirit, or worshipping at the table of demons in our life. And I I would submit to you that there's a whole lot of submitting to demonic activity that we are duped to, we don't even realize it. In fact, if ...we are, by obeying the external stuff... ...stuff we can knock off easy... ...basic principles, elementary things... ...of of your world structure that come easy to you... ...and being secure in this as a sign of your spiritual growth... ...you are, as Paul writes in verse 9, turning back. You are turning back, or you've never moved forward. You are poisoning your spirit... ...you're certainly not growing spiritually... ...and you're exchanging the glory... ...capital G glory, for your own glory entrenching the enslavement of yourself to your flesh and the serving of demons and regularly acting demonic with bursts of anger and rage, to name just something. What it means is we have left the slavery to sin and we have become enslaved to rules and ritual And it's not gospel. It's demonic. And Satan's uh, quite fine with it. Now you're saying again to me, but I go to church. I wear a nice costume. I refrain from swearing. I give a good but mechanical offering. I sing when I'm supposed to and I study God's word. Paul would say back to you, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you. That somehow I have wasted my efforts. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Who has bewitched you? Paul doesn't take this lightly. He he looks at the congregation in Galatia and he says to them, I'm afraid for you. You've been rescued out of something that you were supposed to now be freed uh, with gratitude, by faith, to serve God, and now you've put yourself back in the slave market of rules and rituals. You've just gone from one enslavement to another enslavement, and the more dangerous one about this is: you knew you weren't good over here, but you think you're good here. What's the difference? You're saying I, I'm still I, I'm obeying, aren't I? Well, are you? Are you obeying everything? Because isn't that the gospel? Go and preach the gospel and and teach them to observe whatsoever things I've commanded you. It's about what you are obeying, who you are obeying, and how you are obeying that that differentiates between demonic energized um, religious ritual and spirit-filled living. Obeying the easy stuff for you is the wrong what? Obeying your own choices is the wrong who. And obeying in your own strength is the wrong how. In Galatians 3.25, Paul says, Now that faith has come, which means receiving and relying on God, you are no longer under the supervision of the law. Galatians 3.25 So so let me just wind this up for you and and complete and conclude this for you. Spirit-filled, abundant living, live big living that we've been talking about, transformation-affecting, spirit-dependent obedience is submitting to God's gracious conversion of your desires and your affections so obedience is from spiritual prompting rather than a prideful, self-righteous discipline. Which, by the way, abilities of lost people have. We all are capable of self-righteous discipline. What we aren't capable of is having our desires and affections reshaped by the work of the Spirit of God so that we willingly and gratefully obey the teachings of Christ. Because everything that doesn't come... Everything that does not come from faith, is sin. Turning back to Egypt, the enslavement of the demonic, the not goods, from human willpower and works, religion, rather than reliance by faith on the work of God's Spirit in your life. Now, here's how it works. There's the difference between gospel living and religious ritual has everything to do with how you respond to the Spirit's promptings that he brings to your attention from God's word, sourced in God's word, I might add. That, that's, that's, the, that's the foundation of where the Spirit of God speaks into your life, from His Word. But, but He speaks and He whispers into you something like give this person, give that person a compliment right now. Or, or, or give that person some grace and understanding in spite of their annoying ways. Or give your wife a hug right now, in spite of the fact, this isn't referencing my wife at all, in spite of the fact that one of your wives has been annoying. Give her a hug right now. Or give your husband respect this moment, even though he has not demonstrated a loving attitude towards you today. Now, it's easy to go to church. It's hard to do that, isn't it? Ladies, do what your mom says, even if it is inconvenient. Is that too convicting? Don't tell that person what you heard about that person ever. Phone Barney today and tell him you're sorry and ask him for forgiveness. Today. Pick up the phone and tell Elroy that you forgive him. Don't turn to that channel on the TV. Don't open your computer to that site ever. Stop being critical of your son and start building him up. Encouraging him. that's the difference between what Paul is talking about which is turning back to old rules and rituals that you can knock off in your own strength and having to live by the spirit because that list of stuff and we could go on and on that list of stuff you can't knock that off that, that, that's hard stuff that's, I've got to depend on the spirit kind of stuff. That's gospel stuff. That, that's why I was rescued out of the slave market of sin and brought under the power and work and filling of the Holy Spirit so that I could do that kind of stuff, not in my own strength, but by the strength that God gives me and for His glory alone. So that when someone looks at me and says, Man alive, are you treating your wife well? i got to say, it's not about me, it's about the glory of God. That's gospel living. Satan doesn't want us to get there. Do you believe with me that if we got there en masse and the evangelical world of Durham region got there en masse, do you believe with me that like no other place in the world this region would be turned upside down for Christ? There's plenty of religion going on in this community. There's plenty of rule-keeping going on in this community. There's enough people going into church in this community to save the whole of the world. And we're not making much of an inroad at all. (laughs) Because, I think, Satan has us doing religion instead of freedom in the gospel. My heart's desire for my life and for yours is that we would be the first church in history, the first local congregation in history that would finally say no to the rules and rituals of our own strength and our own glory in favor of really being good news people. Living the gospel. Paul asks them in verse 15 of Galatians 4, What happened to your joy? That's what he was writing. What happened to your joy? You know what happened to their joy? They turned back to slavery. They turned back to the rules and the restrictions and resentment. And you know what? Our kids hate that. That's why we lose our kids. They they hate that. We talk to them about freedom in Christ. And knowing what it is to walk with Christ and love Christ and serve Him with a, a loving and grateful heart. That makes an impact in their lives. That's the gospel. And so it should. That's what Jesus Christ died for. He died for the gospel. That you might be freed... Not to live an antinomian life. Not to cast off all restraint and and live without any sensitivity to the commands. No, it's quite the opposite of that. It is embracing all of the commands of Christ that you formerly couldn't by your own strength that you now can by faith through strength in Him and to His glory. That's the gospel. Satan wants to keep us from it. I pray... We will understand this and embrace this. We will chase Satan far away from us if we will embrace the gospel, our Father and our God. I pray this morning that you would reshape our hearts with a fuller, full understanding of this, so it's such a crucial issue. Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God will wrestle with our hearts and give us no rest until we Respond to Him, not our own strength, not our own glory, but from the Word of God, the commands that the Spirit of God brings to our mind, that obedient act upon obedient act, we will be transformed and filled with the Spirit of God and live big for your glory's sake, I pray.